I want to speak on the subject, Israel, the key to understanding history and prophecy. In our text, we are told in verse 1, verse 7, and verse 15 of Isaiah 43, Israel is God's creation, right in the word creation. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob. Israel was created by God. And this is, of course, what happened. God called Abram, later Abraham, from Ur of the Chaldees, the son of promise. Isaac was given, and out of him, of course, came Jacob, later with his name changed to Israel, the prince of God, from whom the twelve sons, out of which the twelve tribes, the Hebrews, were named. And Doug Bookman this week has been showing how that particular line, whereas the rebellious line who said in Genesis 11, up, let's make us a name. God promises Abraham, later Abraham, I'm going to make you a name. God created them. Just think of it, from beyond the river, in a pagan society, in Ur of the Chaldees, there was the revelation of God that came to one whom God chose, the father of the faithful, yes, the father of Israel, and God would work through him. Now in your notes you'll notice that there are three major themes of biblical prophecy. We know exactly what's going to happen in these three areas, these three biblical themes. Israel, the nations, and the church. We know that in the end times, after Israel has gone through the time of Jacob's trouble, in Romans 11 it says, so all Israel, those who survive the time of Jacob's trouble, and if you want to know exactly what's going to happen, read the prophet Zechariah 13 verses 7, 8 and 9. Two-thirds of the last generation will not survive, but there will be one-third who do, who will acknowledge the Lord. And so you say, two-thirds, is that an overstatement? Folks, from 1933 to 1939, when the Third Reich under Hitler was coming to power, there were 18 million Jews. And when the dust of that war settled, one-third had not survived. So as we see these threefold divisions exemplified in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 32 where Paul says to the Corinthian believers, give no offence to the Jews, to the Greeks, nor to the church of God. There's no place for replacement theology. He, God, created Israel and he has a purpose and a plan through it. Now why did he create it? Well, he created Israel and Jerusalem as his city. Jerusalem occurs in the Bible 700 times in the Older Testament, another 100 in what we call the New Testament. So it's very interesting to me, and I want to take you to Jerusalem. We're going to get in a helicopter, and we're going to see where Jerusalem is literally where God has put his name. I'm not going through 700 references, but let's summarize them in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 6, where God tells us in no uncertain and in unequivocal ways, he says, Yet I have chosen Jerusalem that, listening, my name may be there. And similarly in Psalm 132, for the sake of time, I just make the reference in verse 13 and 14, where he says of Zion, it's the place where he dwells eternally, it's his city. 
Well, this is a prophecy conference about Israel. You didn't know you were going to do Hebrew tonight, but this is the Hebrew letter Shin that starts from the right and goes just like that. All right, we're in a helicopter, and we're going over the holy city of Jerusalem, and this is what happens. You see the letter Shin in the topography of the country. God has literally in the hills of Israel written his name because it's his city. Shin, which is a piece uh, which is on every uh, mezuzah on the doorposts of the Jewish people as they go out and kiss it because it's part of the law. Shin is the abbreviation for El Shaddai. And El Shaddai can be the strength of a mountain or the sustenance of a mother suckling her, her young. And God says, I've put my name there. Can you see it? We'll start from the bottom. Here's the Hinnom Valley. Here's the Valley of the Cheesemakers, the Tyropean Valley. Here's the Kidron Valley and the Mount of Olives up there. Can you see the letter Shin? And there it is. Literally, God has written his name. Do you think God was impressed four years before his death when Yasser Arafat pointing to the hills of Zion and said, it's ours, it's ours, it's ours. He was whipping up Hamas on the West Bank. What I share with you tonight not only comes out of a lifetime of study, but we've lived on the West Bank in Bethlehem. I've been taken into a refugee camp and have seen how the Palestinians are used as pawns. Come to me afterwards, I'll give you the details because after we had searched for a little blind and handicapped Arab boy, we were staying in the House of Hope in Bethlehem, run for mentally uh, retarded and blind Arab children. And a little 14-year-old boy had ran away. We found him back with his parents. We left him there for the night. And my Christian uh, brother and sister, Arab-speaking, living in Bethlehem, they said, Dean, would you like to go to the, to, uh, the refugee camp? Margaret, for security and safety reasons, stayed in the van. I was ushered in, and before long, there were hundreds of the Palestinians. You see, they're used as pawns in those camps. There's no escape for them. They thought I was a Western journalist, and they began to unload. I'll simply tell you that the leader of that had been brought to America, given an Ivy League university training in one of your big Ivy League schools in political science, and was back there, and as he talked with me, he was whipping up the anti Semitic rhetoric against the Jews and preparing for the suicide bombers. So when Arafat said, it's ours, God says, it's not. I pause to just point the attention of your studies to Ezekiel 36 and verse 2 and 5. Ezekiel 36 verse 2 and 5. Israel says God, yes, Lord, yes, what are you saying? Israel, when your inveterate enemies, yes, Lord, I know who they are, they're mentioned as Edom and Moab. Edom, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, who, who rejected and denied his birthright, well, when they point to the mountains of Zion, says God, and say, aha, it's ours, it's ours, it's ours, God says, watch out, I'm about to do something finally, definitively, and it will complete what I want to do with regard, in regard to Israel. Verse 5 says, when they make the land their possession. The prophets tell us that in the last days the land will be divided for spoil. So this city, which is God's city, is the city where he's placed his name. And the Bible, which Graham Scroggie describes as the unfolding drama of 
redemption is primarily, inexorably, it's all to do ultimately, not with us, not with man, though we'll be the recipient of blessing, it's to do altogether with the glory of God. And I believe Charles C. Ryrie is correct when he said, I'm going to give you a word that you can write in, I'll explain what it means. He says, the Bible is, listening, doxological. Can you see it down the bottom there? It's doxological. It has to do with the glory of God. That's why when Messiah returns and establishes his kingdom, yes, those who put their faith and trust in him will know his blessing. But there's the first thing. We're not going to spend as much time on the other of the points that we've got in the text But God created Israel, and he said, just as I created the world, ex nihilo in Latin, out of nothing, so I put my love on a man in a pagan city. Get thee out from your country, your kindred, your home, and go to a land that I will show you. The second reason that we have in the text is this. Not only was Israel created by God, as it were, out of nothing, But Israel was created because of God's sovereign choice. Would you please notice in verse 10, it says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. Are you underlining the words as we go through? Created. Chosen. And similarly in chapter 41 and in verse 8. I don't want to give you a plethora of verses, but this is what it says. But you, O Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. God chose. Why did he do it? Well, we'll have a look. God told Moses why he chose Israel. I don't need to elaborate what David said, but I underscore what he said. Of Israel through Moses, I didn't choose you because you were more in number than the peoples of the world, but I chose you to put my chesed, my covenant love, on the people of my choice. And of course, he does it for a reason, as we will see. Because God had told Abraham, later Abraham, that he would make his, Abram's name, great. As I said, in contradistinction to chapter 11, where the Tower of Babel, we will say Babel, but you understand, it's just that ziggurat that Doug was talking about, and he says, you reach up to heaven because you want to make us a name. Little thought just in passing. By the way, it's one of Doug's little by the ways. Genesis chapter 11 is where confusion began in the beginning. I submit to you, consider whether it may not be so that literally Babylon may be involved in the last days where the whole situation will come to fruition. We're told about that in Revelation 17 and 18. But you see, Abram, I'm going to make your name great. Did he blazon abroad the name of Abram? Ultimately, the promised seed, the Messiah. Galatians 3.16, not seeds, plural, but with a capital S, the Messiah. That's why God chose Israel. Humanly speaking, Jesus would be born through the lineage of the Jewish people as we read in the scriptures. And you know he came to fulfill his mission to die on the cross the first time. Matthew, uh, Mark 10, 45 says he came not to be served but to serve, to minister and give his life a ransom for many. So what's this saying to us? 
He, according to the Scriptures, was crucified. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. He was buried, and on the third day was raised again, according to the Scriptures. That's what uh, Dr. Rennie Showers was talking about in the session this morning. But you know, in Philippians it says, Wherefore, after the seven downward steps of Philippians 2, 5 through to verse 9, or particularly the end of verse 8, Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given to him, listening, the name that is above every name. What's the name that's above every name? That at the name of Jesus? No, that was his human name. Matthew 1.21, you'll call his name Joshua, salvation. And he wasn't from the Christ family, as Steve was reminding us so pertinently yesterday. He's Jesus, that's his human name. And he's the anointed one, the Mashiach, as Christos in Greek will tell us. That's his divine name, the anointed one. And you'll notice that Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee would confess, uh, con uh, bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is altogether Lord. You see, in the Old Testament, Jehovah is Lord. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. And that's why every knee will bow to him. You see how this fits together? Edith Schaefer, in answering someone, said, don't you think it was partial of God that he chose the Jews? And she came up with this inimitable quote. How odd of God to choose the Jews, but not so odd as those who choose the Jewish God and reject or forget the Jews. You see, that's a form of anti-Semitism. And Brother Bill, replacement theology at the basic level is an area of anti-Semitism because it says the church replaces Israel. Are you with me? What have we seen? God says, I created Israel and I created Israel because I chose Israel. The third thing is that God's choice of Israel was because of his calling. Look in chapter 43, verse 1. Thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you. Now this is tapping in where David Levy gave us his message just a while ago. The same thing comes out in verse 7, where he says, Everyone who is called by my name whom I have created for my glory, I formed him, yes, I have made him. Would you allow one other verse, chapter 45, and from verse 3, where the prophet Isaiah is saying this, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden treasures of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. You see, the call of God upon his ancient people it came through the call of Abram nearly 4,000 years ago as God revealed himself in grace uh, to his servant. Abram, the friend of God, as we're told three times in the scriptures. And he leaves Ur. Here's Babylon in present-day Iraq. And he goes up, and of course you know what happened. He loses a family member at Haran. But he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He says in Genesis 15, in verse 6, he believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And that covenant that David Levy was referring to, and I just have time only to touch on it, has three aspects. 
Would you write what the three aspects are in terms of what God would do? Abram, yes, Lord, I'm going to bless you. That's personal blessing. So write in the word personal. Abram, I'm going to raise up seed to you. That's national blessing. That's the nation of Israel. And through the nation of Israel, Messiah would be born. Galatians 3 and verse 16, as I referred to already. That in your seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. Let's stop for a moment. I want to read to you or to quote Galatians 3 verse 13 and 14. And I'm speaking predominantly to Goyim Gentiles here tonight. I want to tell you what Paul said in terms of the death of the Lord Jesus. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he goes on to tell us in chapter 3 and in verse 14 these wonderful words. Christ has redeemed us, verse 13, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Verse 14, underline it, never forget it. In order that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There are at least 36 things that happen to us when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus and we're born again. Two of those things are these. One, we receive the forgiveness of sins. And two, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, for by one Spirit were we all baptised into one body. And so God is saying that the blessing of Abraham through whom his seed would be born the Messiah was ultimately that the blessing of God would flow to you and me as the Gentiles. So God created Israel. God chose Israel. He called Israel. Here's the fourth one. Israel's calling is evidenced by God's covenant with them. You can see why David Levy, we didn't collaborate, but you see how God has put this whole thing together? Because you were introduced to that just a while ago. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 and 8, having said, I didn't choose you because you were more in number than the peoples of the world. But he said, I chose you to put my loyal love, my steadfast love, that love, the steadfast love of the Lord never fails. The love that chooses its object. That love that's unconditional. That love is stubborn. And that love that in choosing gives itself for that object's good, even expecting nothing in return. Then he says, in order that the oath that I swore to the fathers could be fulfilled. And you know, because he could not swear by anyone greater, he swore by himself, which says that as long as the eternal, infinite God should live, he will never go back on his covenant promise. You see, the preservation of the Jewish people cannot be explained away in any other way except for us to understand the unconditional covenant of God. What's that mean? Brothers and sisters, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, unconditional as it is, is saying to us, this is what I'm going to do to Israel and through Israel it will not be dependent on them and what they do or don't do. I will do what I'm going to do. 
And that's why he says in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 about the new covenant, it will have to do with Israel, both in spiritual blessings and in material blessings in the last days. But of course, there was the other covenant, wasn't there? I haven't time to do an overview of the covenants. That's not our purpose. But the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. But there was a special covenant between God and Israel in Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. Mark your Bible, would you? God says to Israel through Moses in this preamble before the Ten Commandments are given in chapter 20, and then in chapters 21, 22, and 23, the elaboration of this covenant with Israel between him, God, and his people. And then concluded in chapter 24, he says, If you will obey my voice. So circle the word if in your scriptures, because Israel had to obey what God says. And every breach of the covenant would mean there would be ramifications. And that's why God said, you break the covenant, Israel, and I'll scatter you. That's the word diaspora. It means the scattering of God's people. And of course, in the last days, that's what he's going to do. Now, on the second page, as you turn, you'll find in Leviticus chapter 26, from verse 28 to 45, I haven't time to read them, but would you notice these four key words? Because in the context of Israel's disobedience, This is what he says. Verse 33, I will altogether scatter you amongst the nations. And he says, it's because this is my judgment upon you. I'll take you from the land that I said will be yours from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, but I'm going to scatter you, Israel. And of course, they've been scattered. There have been three diaspora for Israel. When the forefathers, the 70, went down as the clan into Egypt, but God brought them back because it would be the land of promise. They were scattered into the Babylonian exile for 70 years under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, but God brought 50,000 of them back. And in the last days, they'll be scattered throughout the world, but in the last days, as Dr. Showers would remind us, he'll talk about it tomorrow, God will begin and gather, and we're seeing that today. So he says, I'm going to disperse you because I'm going to scatter you. Then he says, yet in the lands of your scattering, I'm going to preserve you. Right in the word preservation. Because God doesn't give up on Israel. He scatters them, but he preserves them. And he says, I'm doing it because I remember the land. And ultimately, I'm going to restore you to the land. Ultimately, that I might be your God. Brothers and sisters, they are the four key words relative to what God would do with his people. Judgment comes and they're scattered. But God doesn't finish with them. He preserves them with a view to restoration. And the modern nation of Israel came into being on the 14th of May, 1948. Ultimately, that he might be the one to whom they're reconciled. Did you notice in Isaiah 43 and verse 15, you, Israel, whom I've created, and I'm the Holy One of Israel, that I might be your king. And the glory of God will be seen when the king returns. Now we've got just a couple more to go through. Are you tracking with me? Can you follow? God creates them. He chooses them. 
He calls them. He establishes a covenant with them. And the fifth thing we notice, Israel's irrevocable covenant by God is confirmed God's salvation for her or the confirmation of her salvation in the past. And that's why he says, I want to tell you, this is why as he addresses Israel still in Babylon, because Isaiah 43, you see Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are about the judgment of God. And the next 27 chapters will deal with the mercy of God. And so that beautiful picture, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, for a warfare is past, and she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's the message we bring. And of course, we speak tenderly to Jerusalem. But he reminds them. He says, you're going to go out of the land where you will be scattered for 70 years. And he says in verses 3 and 4, he says, when you pass through the waters, they'll not overcome you. When you go through the fires, you won't be scorched because I will achieve my purposes with you. And similarly, if you look in Psalm 105 and in verse 10, this is what he says he will do for Israel. Psalm 105 and in verse 10. He confirmed the covenant to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. He confirmed the covenant as an everlasting covenant. And I think that's significant because Israel could look and say, this is what God did for us and to us in the past. God says, yes, I've confirmed it in my covenant promise. But that's to be a springboard for you, Israel, because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. I told you you'd be 430 years in Egypt, but I'm going to bring you back. And I told you you'd be dispersed because of your disobedience, but I'll bring you back. And in the last days, this is what I'm doing. Can you see the picture beginning to build? Israel is the key to understanding history and prophecy. Why did he choose the people? Well, twofold, really. Because he saved them to reveal his unrivaled glory. His unrivaled glory. You have in the notes there that to the land or to the people of Israel, they are the only nation to whom the Shekinah, the, the, the glory crowd, cloud, was revealed. The only nation. And you know as they were led out of uh, the land of bondage in redemption, the cloud went before them. In Isaiah, in those two verses, 42, 8 and 48, verse 11, God says, listening, I will not give my glory to another. Now, we take that in terms of personal, individual. That's true. Folks, I will not give my glory to another nation. It's yours. And John will tell us in the first chapter of his gospel, we beheld his Messiah's glory, full of grace and truth. And the glory is to be revealed in the church now, as we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But nevertheless, God says, to my people, I will reveal the glory. And in that, he shows his unconditional love. That's what David Levy was talking about, the unconditional love. God will fulfill his purposes because Messiah would be born, humanly speaking, a Jew born of the Virgin Mary. And you'll notice, as J. Sidlow Baxter says, the 27 chapters of Isaiah 40 to 66, and to the end of three cycles, 
of nine or at the end of the eighth chapter, you end up with this little phrase. Have you ever seen it? There's no peace, says my God, to the wicked. So in chapter 41, there's a word of comfort. And he ends the first cycle in chapter 48, the last verse. There's no peace, says my God, to the wicked. And then you go at the end of uh, the next cycle, another eight chapters. There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. And this is the most evangelistic book of all the prophets. As our brother, Dr. Victor Buxbazen, has said in his commentary, here's the message. And it ends with the most grim picture of those who rejected Christ in hell in the last verse of the book of Isaiah. And Baxter, I think, rightly points to the fact that in the middle of those 27 chapters, with the message that there's no peace for those who are the wicked, there's Isaiah 53, slap dab right in the middle. It's the story of Messiah who came to save. Well, that leads us to conclusion very quickly as we wrap this up. Because God created them, because he chose them, because he called them, because he's established a covenant with them, and because he's confirmed it to what he's done in the past, he says, Israel, I've got a message for you in the, in the present. All you have to do is to take this message of comfort. It's found in the Lord Jesus. And he says in Isaiah 43 and in verse 5 and 6, for example, these words, fear not, for I am with you. I'll bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. And I'll say to the north, give them up and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. God's going to do that in the last days. And just as he says, why? Because verse 15, I'm the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. I'm your king. The head that once was crowned with thorns, my brothers and sisters, is crowned with glory now, but a royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. Israel, this is what I've done in the past, and I'm telling you I've got a message of comfort if you'll only come to the Messiah, and I'm going to tell you that there's a commitment on my part because of what I'm going to do. You see, Jerusalem is the city of the great king. It is the city of righteousness. It is Jerusalem, the city of peace. And the last thing as we conclude, this all guarantees God's unconditional commitment to save his chosen people in the future. And so he says in verse 14 and 15, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I'll send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships, for I am the Lord, the Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. I'm going to do this to your enemies, Israel. And you remember Dr. Showers this morning when he said that final act, a rebellious man, as all the nations are gathered against Jerusalem in that last day, we will not have you come to establish your kingdom. All anti-God forces will be overthrown. And Jesus shall reign in that millennial kingdom. And his kingdom stretch from shore to shore till suns, till moon shall wax and wane no more. I just draw your attention to this little verse here. 66, 8 of Isaiah. And the analogy is of a woman in travail giving birth. And God says, can a nation be born in a day? 
She goes through the labor pains. And finally, there's the joy of new life. Israel is going to go through labor pains spiritually and as a people. And we need to be praying for them. But God says in the final analysis, remember I promised you, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. And we are looking to the day when he establishes his kingdom. The replacement theologians and post-tribulationists will say that the establishment of the modern state of Israel was when the nation was born in a day. That's true nationally, but she's got yet to be born spiritually. And the current conflict that we're seeing in the Middle East between the Palestinians and the Israelis as the road map to peace winds inexorably on. In the time of the tribulation, Zechariah will tell us in chapter 12 and verse 3, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone, a burdensome stone. Some translations, an immovable rock. The nations don't know what to do with Jerusalem. But ultimately, the king will come and he'll cleanse um, a temple that's going to be built on the most prized piece of real estate in Jerusalem. And there's the bricked up golden gate. And I'm reminded of Ezekiel 44 and verse 2. It'll be bricked up till Messiah goes through it and he cleanses the temple. So you better believe, dear friends, and I'm going to leave the four prophetic untils for the sake of time, that the stage is being set for Israel's king to return and to rule from David's throne in Jerusalem, just as Mary was told by the angel when she was chosen, humanly speaking, to bear the Christ child. He will rule from the throne of David. And you say, well, where's this all headed? If you've forgotten nearly everything that I've shared tonight because we're under time pressure, my brother and sister, fellow traveller on the highway to heaven, don't forget Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 22. You'll notice what it says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned amongst the nations wherever you went. So Israel is the key to understanding history because history ultimately is his story about the coming of Messiah the first time and what he will do in the last days when he establishes his kingdom and then we move into the eternal state and share with him forever. You see, it's the picture. His name, his word, his prophetic promise, his covenant is all at stake. His character is included so that no person, no nation, no one will ever point the finger of a thrice holy God, the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Abram, Isaac and Jacob, and said, you said you were going to do it, but you couldn't pull it off. It's for his holy namesake. It's all to do with the glory of God. And so he's going to come back personally, visibly, literally and suddenly. And he's coming back to Israel. And his feet will touch down, says Zechariah 14 verse 4, in that day on the Mount of Olives. That was the mount from which he went. It will be the mountain just east of the Temple Mount and of the Kidron Valley to which he'll return. And that's the full circle, my brothers and sisters. But as we conclude, what does God want us to do? 
I want to suggest, first of all, on the basis of the mercies of God, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, for this is your spiritual form of worship. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mould, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind in order that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The first thing, be abandoned to him as the Lord of your life. The second thing, make priorities. You notice in the notes I've tried to just codify it in terms of your time, in terms of your talents, and in terms of your treasure. If you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. And I'm challenging my own heart as I share in concluding tonight. Make priorities because life is not a dress rehearsal. And that's why Margaret and I, I'll tell you how old I am. I'm coming 68 and my wife is 39 and holding. But I want you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem because that ultimately is a prayer for the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we take this precious message to Jew and Gentile alike. It's the message of the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We're not ashamed of it for therein is the righteousness of God revealed just as the scripture says from faith to faith to the Jew first. And there's coming a time when the gospel of the kingdom, as Rennie Showers reminded us so pertinently this morning, is going to be shared to the Jewish people as well. I see Israel as the key to all history and prophecy. And I'm glad by the grace of God to be involved, to take God's chesed, his covenant love, to them. God bless the friends of Israel. God bless America. And God bless Israel.